Everyone loves a good family mystery, especially one with as many twists and turns as June's journey. Step into the role of June Parker and search for hidden clues to uncover the mystery of her sister's murder. Find hidden clues and uncover a murder mystery. Solve mind-teasing mysteries of the Roaring Twenties. Engage your sense of observation to find hidden clues. Search for hidden objects from the parlors of New York to the sidewalks of Paris and uncover a collection of dazzling hidden object spectacles for you to solve. We're all here because we love true crime, right? Well, this game has the perfect twists and turns to keep your brain asking, what happened here? There's nothing I love more than getting to decorate my very own luxurious state island. The best part? You can chat and play with or against other players by joining a detective club. Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Hello, listeners. I'm your host, Amara, and this is Black Girl Gone, a true crime podcast. On this episode of Black Girl Gone, we tell the story of Maitrese Richardson, a 24-year-old woman who disappeared on September 17, 2009, after being released from police custody. Maitrese left the station that night with no phone, no car, and was never seen or heard from again. Eleven months later, her remains were found on a farm not far from the station. Did Maitrese die of natural causes? Or was she murdered? And if she was murdered, who was responsible? This is Maitrese's story. When Maitrese was born in 1985, her mother Latisse was finishing her senior year of high school. Maitrese's mom met Maitrese's dad, Michael, when they were juniors. The two were young lovebirds, and that love resulted in Latisse getting pregnant with Maitrese. Watts in the 80s was plagued, like many inner cities at that time, by drugs, and Michael, as a young man, took advantage of the quick money that could be made by selling drugs on the side. But that fast money came with consequences and felonies. The couple graduated from high school, and Latisse began working while Michael sold drugs. Michael eventually was arrested and given an eight-year sentence. After Michael went to jail, Latisse remarried, and in 1993, the family moved from Watts to San Gabriel Valley. Latisse wanted a better life for Maitrese, and that was the primary motivation for her to leave Watts. Latisse opened a business providing legal services to people, and the family settled nicely in their new home. Maitrese was an active kid. She was a cheerleader in middle school, and her love for cheerleading evolved into a love for dance. And so by the time Maitrese was in high school, she was spending a lot of her free time dancing. In an article in the LA Magazine about Maitrese, her aunt recalls that Maitrese was a princess. And while the other kids were out playing, Maitrese, who hated to get dirty, was inside dancing or writing in her journal. Maitrese had always excelled academically. After graduating from high school, Maitrese attended California State University Fullerton. And Maitrese majored in psychology, and she was an honor student, you know, during her entire time in college. 
In 2008, Maitri's graduated and she started doing an internship with a local psychologist who was also a family friend. Maitreese had recently came out to her family as lesbian and was dating a young woman named Tessa. And once Maitreese came out, she never hid her sexuality. In fact, many reports describe her as being out and proud and happy in her relationship. So by 2009, Maitreese is living in Watts with her great-grandmother, Mildred. She was still interning with the psychologist, but she'd also started working for her girlfriend's father's shipping company, doing some clerical work. Maitreese was planning to go to graduate school, and so, you know, she was working and saving some money for school. But in the spring of 2009, Maitreese and Tessa, after two years together, broke up. And after her relationship with Tessa ended, Maitreese started dancing as a go-go dancer at a local gay club in L.A. Now, by August of 2009, however, Maitreese's behavior was starting to change. She met a woman at the club that she was dancing at, and the woman apparently had had a girlfriend and had rejected Maitreese's advances. The LA Magazine article described Maitreese's behavior with this young woman as obsessive. It retells a story in which Maitreese apparently drove alone to Las Vegas to attend this woman's birthday party, and the woman had to eventually tell Maitreese, you know, like, you, you got to leave me alone. So... Also around this time, Maitreese's postings on her MySpace page are becoming more and more strange and described sometimes as ramblings. Now, a few days before Maitreese was last seen, she had a strange conversation with her mother, Latisse. And this conversation took place through text message. And Latisse has already become increasingly, you know, concerned about Maitreese's behavior as of late. And, you know, the signs that Maitreese is struggling with her mental health are becoming more and more obvious to her mom. So according to reports, Maitreese had sent her mother a series of rambling, incoherent text messages. And so Latisse had texted Maitreese back and said, quote, you have to tell me what's going on with you. You've been somewhat elusive and philosophical. Tell me what's up. Have you found yourself in a state of sadness? Are you crying without reason or understanding? I'm concerned. Help me understand what's going on with you. Are you feeling lost, helpless, alone, rejected? And then Maitreese responds to her mom and she says, I'm writing a book because you told me I can be anything I wanted. You told me I was Miss America. You told me I was America's next top model. Now do you know what I want to be when I grow up? Miss Mother Nature, because Miss America is a fake-ass joke along with everything else we see. So I'm trying to find my way to Michelle Obama to see if she will help me talk to Mr. Obama about creating my position in the White House. And so after Latisse gets this, you know, text message from Maitreese, she tells her to call her. But Maitreese doesn't call her mom. She sends her another text message. And this text message says, I feel joy, mommy. Not everyone has to die to live. I heard in the Bible, Jesus dies so we can live forever. Now I have to prove the unlogic. Now, it's not clear if she ever spoke to her daughter or if their conversation remained through text, but something is obviously going on with Maitreese. Now, she didn't have a history of mental illness, so her behavior is catching everyone off guard. 
On Wednesday, September 16th, at around 3 a.m., Latisse would again receive another strange series of text messages from Maitrice. But when she tried to call her daughter, she still would not answer the phone. According to reports, on Wednesday, September 16th, 2009, a co-worker saw Maitrice at work and said she appeared happier than usual. She stayed at work for a little while, and then Maitrice went to lunch, but she never returned. Now, later that afternoon, Maitrice showed up at home where she was living with her great-grandmother, but then she left without saying where she was going. Maitrice left South LA in her Honda Civic and drove to Malibu, California. Now, Malibu was not a place that Maitrice went often, and as far as her family and friends knew, Maitrice didn't know anything about Malibu, so no one is sure why she drove there that evening. Once Maitrice arrived in Malibu, she made the fateful decision to go to Joffrey's, which was an upscale restaurant in Malibu. Now, when Maitrice arrives at the restaurant, she pulled up to the valet. Reports state that from the moment Maitrice arrived at the restaurant, her behavior was off. Now, when the valet spoke to Maitrice and asked her what she was doing at the restaurant, she said, quote, it's subliminal, and then said something about avenging the death of Michael Jackson. Now, although Maitrice sounded a little off and she, you know, was saying some odd things, she appeared to be harmless to the valet. You know, strange, but harmless. And so the valet went ahead and parked Maitrice's car. But when he came back, he found Maitrice sitting in his car, which he had left open, and she's going through his glove box. Now, he asked Maitrice, you know, to get out of his car, and, and she did. Now, despite all of this, you know, he still felt like Maitrice was harmless. But he did, you know, give the hostess a heads up to kind of let her know, you know, that Maitrice was acting a little, you know, strange. So Maitrice goes into the restaurant and she's seated at a table where she orders a Kobe steak and a drink. Now, not long after Maitrice placed her order, she noticed a group of people sitting at a table nearby her. And Maitrice decided that she was going to join them. And so she goes and sits at the table with the group and attempts to engage them in a conversation. But Maitrice was not coherent, according to the group. You know, she was rambling, and she even said that she was from Mars. Um, and, you know, even though, once again, you know, Maitrice is, you know, rambling and saying odd things, you know, the, when, the, when the waitress comes to the table and asks the guests, are they okay?, you know, they say everything was fine because, you know, Maitrice appeared to be harmless. Now, eventually the group finished their meal, they paid their check, and they left. But when it was time for Maitrice to pay her bill, she started to head towards the door. The manager at Joffrey stopped Maitrice at the door, you know, and asked her about paying her bill. Now, Maitrice told the manager that she thought that the group that she was sitting with had covered her bill. They had not. And her bill was $89. And Maitrice is telling them that she doesn't have any money to pay the bill. She reportedly says to the manager, you know, quote, I'm busted. You know, what are we going to do? And at this time, according to the restaurant staff, Maitrice's behavior is becoming increasingly more bizarre. And as the manager is talking to Maitrice, you know, he she tells the manager that she doesn't have any money. And according to the manager, Maitrice tells him that she's 
you know, from Mars and that she offers to pay the bill with sex. So the restaurant staff at this point says that Maitrese, you know, pulls out a joint from her pocket and they make the decision that they need to call the police. And so I'm going to play the actual 911 call made from Joffrey's that night. Hi, I'm calling from Joffrey's restaurant in Malibu. Yeah. Um, we have a guest here who is refusing to pay her bill, and we think she may, I mean, she sounds really crazy. She may be on drugs or something. Um, we are wondering if someone can come by and pick her up. Okay, well, what's the address there? It's 27400 Pacific Coast Highway. And is she a white, black, Asian, Hispanic? She's a um, young black girl. She's probably in her 20s. Okay, what's she wearing? She's wearing a black T-shirt. And I think blue jeans. Is she with anybody else? No, it's just her. Now, that was the hostess from Joffrey's. But in a later interview, the manager of Joffrey's, who, according to reports, is guilt-ridden about that night and has received death threats in the wake of what happened to Mitrice, says that the staff debated on, you know, just covering Mitrice's bill that night and, you know... They ultimately made the decision to call the police because they were concerned for her safety. Now, I don't really know if that makes sense. Like, I can't really judge the staff at the restaurant for their actions that night because we never really know what we're going to do unless we're placed in a situation. But them saying that they were going to cover Mitrice's bill but were worried about her safety just doesn't sound like, you know, a complete story to me because... While they were waiting for the police to arrive, Maitrese called her great-grandmother, Mildred, who offered to pay the bill over the phone, but because of a signature issue, would not allow her to pay it. So I feel like if they had the opportunity to have the bill paid, then they could have just accepted the payment. These are, you know, you know, these circumstances are not normal circumstances. They could have accepted the payment without the signature. And then when the police arrived, they could have just simply said, you know, the bill's been taken care of. But, you know, for whatever reason, they didn't. Now, when police deputies arrived at Joffrey's, they were under the impression that Maitrese was either drunk or on drugs. So they give Maitrese a field sobriety test, but she passes. And they ask her questions about, you know, why she come to Joffrey's that night. And she told them that she had been drawn by the lights. They asked her if she was on any medications and if she'd ever been placed on a 72-hour hold for a psychological evaluation, which Mitrice answered no to both questions. Police also searched Mitrice's car, and while searching her vehicle, they found some marijuana and a few empty bottles of liquor. The police claim they found her ID in the car, but make no mention of her cell phone wallet or any money. Well, Mitrice is placed under arrest, and she's charged with defrauding an innkeeper and possession of marijuana. Now, while Mitrice is sitting in the back of the police car, waiting to be taken to the police station, Latisse has been told by Mildred that Mitrice was arrested. And Latisse calls the station to try to find out what's going to happen to her daughter. And here's the audio from that call. I am calling. I'm a little frazzled right now. I understand my daughter is being brought into the station. My Therese Richardson, have they made it to the station yet? And she's been booked. Okay. Is, is, do you know where she's coming from? 
Okay, so you can hear in the call that my trees' mom is calling to find out, you know, what will happen to my trees and whether or not they're going to hold her. You know, her focus is on my trees' safety once she's released. But the officer on the phone doesn't really tell her what will happen, and he just assures her that my trees will be safe while in their custody. Latisse, who at the time had a 10-year-old daughter, didn't want to have to wake her up and drive to the station that night if Matrice was going to be held overnight. She also seems to find, you know, some relief that Matrice is in police custody. I mean, Matrice has been acting erratically lately, and her mom had been worried about her safety while out here in the world. So for Latisse, Matrice spending the night at the station meant that she would be safe, at least for the night. So... Matrice's car is impounded, and she is brought to the Lost Hills Police Station. Now, this station is about a 25-minute drive from the restaurant, and it's in a really, you know, remote part of Malibu. Now, despite the odd behavior witnessed by the restaurant staff, the arresting officer doesn't say anything in the arrest report about Matrice exhibiting any odd behavior or making any strange statements. Now, there's a theory that the arresting officer did not want to do the extra paperwork involved with arresting a mentally unstable person. Detaining Matrice under what they call a 5150 hold would have required the police to do a little bit more work and take a little bit more time and possibly even go to the hospital with Matrice. It would have been much easier for them to just charge her with defrauding an innkeeper and the marijuana position. So... When Matrice arrived at the station, she didn't call her mom like her mom requested when she called the police. She didn't have her phone, and the only number that she memorized was her great-grandmother's number. Now, by 2009, all of us were pretty heavily reliant on our cell phones for numbers. Like, I legit only have, you know, my number and my husband's number memorized, and my husband barely even knows his own cell phone number. So for my trees to only have memorized, you know, her great-grandmother's number even in 2009 makes perfect sense. Plus, her grandmother probably had had the same number for years. So police said that my trees did try to call her great-grandmother at least four times that night. 
Police stated that they overheard Maitreese having a conversation, but Mildred, Maitreese's great-grandmother, says that her phone never rang that night. She said the last time that she spoke to Maitreese was at Joffrey's. Ironically, the phone that Maitreese was using was broken and therefore conveniently unable to record the calls that were being made that night. So no one knows who Maitreese called or if she called anyone at all. Maitreese was released from police custody at around 12.15 a.m. Maitreese walked out of the doors of the Lost Hills police station and was never seen again. By the time Latisse woke up and called the station at around 5.30 a.m. the next morning, she's told that Maitreese was released early that morning. Maitreese, a young woman with no car, no phone, and no money, was released miles away from the closest open business and 40 miles from her home. The jailer said that, you know, they insisted that Maitreese wait in the lobby, but that Maitreese refused and said that she was meeting friends. But no one knows if that, you know, actually even happened. So why would the police just release Maitreese? Why wouldn't they take her to her car? There would be so many questions about the conduct of the police in the days and weeks after Maitreese disappeared. Now, after speaking to the jailer and finding out that Maitreese was released around 12 a.m. and that no one has heard from her since, Latisse calls the Lost Hill Police Station again and speaks to Deputy Kenneth Baumgartner. Here's the actual call. Yes, good, good morning. My name is Latisse Button. I'm calling to follow up on my daughter who was brought in last night around 10.30, 11 o'clock. Okay, let me chat to the jailer. Hold on, please. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Yes, hi, my name is Latisse Batten. I called not too long ago regarding my daughter, Maitreese Richardson. How long before a missing person's report can be filed? Is it 24 or 48 hours? Well, it depends on the circumstances, but... uh... Um, I, I didn't take your call, so I'm not familiar with it. Did she just not return home after going out? She was arrested last night. This is the first time she's been arrested. Um, she's in an unknown area mm-hmm. that she's never been in. She's without a vehicle. Nobody can find her. And, and where was this at? Where was she arrested at? Your your facility. Her name is Maitreese Richardson. Okay. Do, do you know if she's... If she's here now, or was she released? They said she was released. Okay, and what time was she released? Um, at, at just shortly after 12 a.m. Yeah, normally I we wouldn't I wouldn't recommend doing one uh, that soon. Um, right. What is the time frame? You know, I I guess probably 24 hours would be reasonable. I mean, if, if there would be some some mitigating factors, you know, where, you know, you su- would suspect maybe something, you know, well, not yeah. quite right. She doesn't know the area. She's never been in your area before. Where, where, do you, where does she live? She is unfamiliar with that area. Do you she think she possibly could have gotten a bus home? No. And oh, listen, my child has never ridden a bus. Okay. No, right. she would not know how to ride a bus. I would probably wait till, you know, 
early this morning, and if she doesn't turn up, you can certainly call. I don't suspect anything um, bad happened. I'm concerned because, uh, well, first of all, I thought they were going to keep her overnight because she was highly intoxicated. Uh -huh. um, something, so, so, something is obviously going on with her. Have you she talked tried... to the jailer? And... Yes, 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 I have. He said he tried to get her disabled because she was an adult. They had to let her go. I, I believe that she is highly depressed, um, and she, she, she's in a depressive state. You know, it could be possible that maybe she, I mean, there's a lot of options and I, a lot of possibilities, and I don't think all of them would be, um, you know, something dire, but I can certainly understand your fears, you know, being your daughter and all that. Well, um, I think she's depressed. That's what has me is more that what, That's worth that. you more than just her, okay. That and the fact that she's in an area where she doesn't know where she's at. Yeah, does so, she take medication at all? No, she. I, I believe it's a state that she's in right now because of just the, the weird activity that's been going on. What's her name? Day. What's her, her name? name is, her name is Matrice okay. Richardson. Okay, and your name, ma'am? Latrice. Okay, Here's what I want you to do. Let, yeah. get, why don't you wait a couple hours? And, and give us some time to kind of, I'll go back and talk to the jailer and try and get a timeline of when she was released and, you know, make sure she's not asleep in our lobby or anything like that. And then once you give us a call back in a couple hours, if she hasn't shown up okay. or made contact with you, then maybe we can do something for you, okay? So as you can hear in the 911 call, you know, Latisse is extremely concerned about the safety of her daughter. But the police, however, discouraged her from filing a missing persons report, you know, telling her that she should wait 24 hours. The officer does, however, tell Latisse that, you know, he would attempt to get more information about Mitrice's release. But an hour after Latisse speaks to the deputy, 911 receives a call from a gentleman named Bill Smith. And here's what Bill tells the police. Sheriff Station Office, can I help you? Yeah, hi. Hey, uh, this is uh, uh, Smith at Cold Canyon. We had a prowler walking around through the backyard here, but we don't know what the situation was. I uh, don't know if you have a unit in the area. It might do a little drive-by or something. Okay, where is this at? This is Cold Canyon. I found gold in Mali Nido. Uh, but it's in the back of the house, uh, which is right where Wood Bluff hits, the, hits uh, Cold Canyon. And we just had a strange woman walking through the backyard here. It's a fairly large property, and she was sitting on the steps right, right on the back of the house here. Uh, this is kind of a circular driveway, and the gates were closed, so we don't know where this woman came from. Did you see the cross was Wood Bluff? Yeah, that's right. Uh, there, there's a, a horse trail, a hiking trail access through here, but we've never had this kind of happen, thing happen before. What she look like, white, black, and uh, You know, a tall, slim, black woman with Afro hair. How tall? Uh, well, she was sitting down, stretched out on the wooden steps in the back of the house. Hard to tell, but uh, she looked like she might have been medium to slightly tall, uh, with a big Afro hair, very skinny. Uh, I think she was wearing maybe jeans or tight pants with a t-shirt. You never, you've never seen her there before? No, never. Nobody ever does that. I mean, the, the people hike on the trail all the time. We, you know, the trail goes through our property, but we leave it open on purpose because it's kind of a nice thing for horses and people. So we can hear in this call that around 6.30 a.m., Mitrice appears to be alive. The description that Bill gives matches Mitrice's description, including her outfit. 
Now, deputies do send a car out to Bill Smith's home, but Bill had also told them on the phone that she had left about five minutes before he placed the call. Police, however, don't issue what is called a be-on-the-lookout alert until six hours after Mitrice was allegedly last seen. Now, by the time the deputy went to Bill Smith's home, Deputy Bogardner had spoken to Latisse's mom an hour before. They knew that although they had discouraged her from filing a missing persons report, that Latisse was very concerned about Mitrice. So why wouldn't they issue the be on the lookout alert immediately? Two days would go by before the L.A. Sheriff's Department would initiate a search for Mitrice. By the time they began, there had been no sightings of Mitrice since Bill Smith saw her on his property. The police used scent dogs in an attempt to track Mitrice's scent, but instead of searching from the police station, they decided to start at Bill Smith's house. Which is odd, considering that she turned up at Bill Smith's house almost five hours after she left the station. So why would they not start at the station to see where she went when she left. They don't know if Mitrice walked the six miles to Bill Smith's home or if she was driven to that area. Now, when police search around Bill Smith's property, they find footprints that are consistent with the sneakers that Mitrice was wearing. The footprints appeared as if Mitrice was running, though. But police lose the trail near a hiking path that is near Bill's home and, for whatever reason, don't go down the path. There seemed to be almost like zero sense of urgency on behalf of the L.A. Sheriff's Department. And they eventually hand the case over to the LAPD missing person unit, who had more resources and more manpower to help search for my trees. But then it was transferred again to the robbery and homicide unit, who was said to have even better resources than the missing persons unit. Now, I'm not sure if this is true or if they were just passing the buck because it seemed like no one really, really cared about my trees. Now, once the case was transferred, the police searched my trees' car and found her cell phone, ID, and debit card inside of the car. They also found money inside of the car, which is something that the arresting officers never mentioned or claimed that they never found. They also found a journal of Mitrice's in her car. And police conclude from the entries in the journal that Mitrice was possibly having a bipolar episode on the night that she was arrested. So Mitrice's family is promised an exhaustive search for her. Her family is told, you know, that it would take place over two days and that there would be helicopters and, you know, dogs, the whole nine. But on September 19, 2009, three days after Mitrice went missing, police conducted a search, but it was far from the search that they promised Mitrice's family. Instead, about four deputies showed up to the search, and it was over before the sun went down. Mitrice's family and friends had come to the area to search for Mitrice on their own. They didn't feel like the police were taking the search for Mitrice seriously, and so they rubbed up their own efforts. They started their own searches and created missing person flyers to pass around the area. And as the days went on, the media began to pick up Mitrice's story. 
people began to question the actions of the police that night. No one could understand why the police would release a young woman in the middle of the night with no phone and no money. So I actually Googled the police station so I could get a better understanding of the area. And it's a pretty empty area. You know, it's really nothing around the station. So I can only imagine that at 12.15 in the morning, it's completely deserted. So once it gets out in the media, police go on the defensive. They defend their actions that night, saying that Maitrese was lucid and coherent and, you know, they didn't see any signs of any mental distress when they arrested her. And they denied that she had been exhibiting the behavior of someone who was having a mental health episode. But those assertions contradict an email that was sent just three days after Maitrese was released from their custody. As reported in the LA Magazine article, and an email sent by Lieutenant Scott Chu to his supervisor, Captain Thomas Martin, Lieutenant Chu says that the arresting officer said that Maitrese was acting odd and that the email states that he booked her, quote, because he wanted to make sure that she was all right. She was a little ditzy at Joffrey's and a deputy checked her for intoxication. She wasn't drunk. But the arresting officer felt that she was acting unusual and was uneasy about letting her go. And then she went on to say in the email that in the end, the officer brought her in because of his instincts. And the fact that she disappeared validated his instincts, unquote. But later, Lieutenant Chu would deny writing that email, saying that he didn't remember writing the email or speaking to the arresting deputy. The arresting deputy also says that he doesn't remember having that conversation with Lieutenant Chu. It was convenient that neither of them remember having that conversation, but also unfortunate that it was actually in an email that was written three days after her disappearance. I think it's easy to see why some people may think that they're hiding something. But that would be the story that the police would stick with, that Maitrese was not incoherent when they arrived, her behavior was not odd or off, and she was fine when she was at the station, and she was exhibiting no signs of mental incapacitation whatsoever. But out of all the people that encountered Maitrese that night, the police seem to be the only ones who say that Maitrese's behavior was perfectly fine. Now, weeks went by with no new information about Maitrese or her whereabouts. Maitrese's family had been asking for footage from inside the station, which they were told did not exist. Captain Martin was even quoted as saying that there was no video or tape evidence of any kind. But on January 6, 2020, nearly four months after Maitrese went missing, Captain Martin admitted that there was, in fact, footage from inside the police station. But it would take another three months and a new captain before Maitrese's family would be able to see a heavily edited version of the surveillance footage. According to her family, in the video, Maitrese appears to be irritated and in distress. They say you can tell that pieces of the footage had been cut out without explanation. Now, the redactions in the video 
only made my Teresa's family even more suspicious of the department. I mean, what are they hiding? The missing pieces of footage weren't the only things that caused alarm for my Teresa's family. The footage also shows Maitreese leaving the station that night. But what stuns her family is that a deputy can be seen leaving out of the door the same time as Maitreese. This would indicate to Maitreese's family that he might have spoken to Maitreese or at least seen which direction she was headed in. But the police made no mention of this deputy. In fact, they refused to even release the name of this deputy. Now, when LA Magazine got a hold of the officer's name, they contacted him. And he claims that he was not there that day, despite being on camera. Now, when they reached out to him a second time, he claimed that he was there, but he said, quote, the night this nonsense happened, I was one of the guys that kept away from this, minded my own business, unquote. Now, what is he talking about? What nonsense? What did he mean, one of the guys that kept away from this? Like, away from what? What is this? His statements are hella suspicious, especially since he first denied even being there. So this would be the final nail in the coffin for Maitreese's family when it comes to their trust in the police. The police have been withholding information and their search for Maitreese was less than adequate. They were frustrated and desperate for answers, but they were getting nothing. Months went by with little answers from police. Despite the questionable behavior of police that night, no formal investigation was launched by the Internal Affairs Bureau. Now, in L.A., they have an independent review board called the Office of Internal Review, and it investigates, you know, complaints against police. But the board claimed that there was no report of a violation of police policy, but they decided to, you know, do a preliminary review anyway. Now, in July 2019, 10 months after Maitreese Richardson disappeared, the Office of Internal Review released a 58-page report, and, you know, the report failed to include really, really important details about what happened. I mean, it makes no mention of you know, Lieutenant, Lieutenant Chu's emails to the captain. Um, they claimed that the deputy that was seen leaving, you know, the same time Maitreese was, could not have abducted Maitreese because he was on assignment with his partner. But they don't explain why they withheld his information or why he lied about being there that night. Now, the report also notes that, quote, the Office of Internal Review played a multifaceted role in the review of the department's decisions and actions, unquote. But that's not the whole truth, because it also says that the Office of Internal Review did not conduct any interviews of the deputies and station jailer who had actual contact with Ms. Richardson on September 16th and 17th, 2009, or who were involved in her being taken into custody or released from custody, unquote. Now, I'm not sure how you play a multifaceted role when you don't interview anybody that was actually there. But that was it. 
the Office of Internal Review report adds nothing. The lack of information and the details it left out are just not satisfactory to Mitrice's family. Now, in the months that followed her disappearance, there were reports of sightings of Mitrice. Michael, her father, and a high school friend had both claimed they saw Mitrice in Las Vegas at different times, but those leads never panned out. In August 2010, 11 months after Mitrice disappeared, rangers who had been searching the area near the station went into an area called Dark Canyon. The rangers were checking on a marijuana farm that had been there, and they were making sure that it was still closed. There, the rangers find Mitrice's partially clothed remains, eight miles from the police station and two miles from Bill Smith's home. It's not clear whether or not deputies ever searched Dark Canyon previously, and if they didn't, there was no explanation about why they didn't. Now, once rangers called the deputies to the scene, they left. But for reasons that are unknown, it took the sheriff's office 90 minutes to call the coroner. The coroner, however, never makes it to the scene. Police claim that they were waiting for a chopper to bring them to the scene, but that the chopper was unable to make it. Now, instead of leaving the remains like the law requires, the sheriff's department picked up the remains and took them back to the sheriff's station. And they had done this without the permission of the coroner. Because if they had been given permission, the coroner would have made them at least take pictures first. So the behavior of the police after my truce was found only added to the suspicions about the police. Why would the police treat a crime scene this way? Why would they remove a body before the coroner arrived? Now, when my truce was found, she was nude. The only clothing that was recovered was her bra, jeans, and a belt that were found a few hundred feet away. Now, the police's explanation was that animals had caused this. They determined that they must have eaten the other clothing, including her sneakers. But the jeans were not ripped from her body, and she was wearing a belt. So did the animals take her belt off? And, you know, the belt was found intact. So did they just unbuckle her belt and take it off and then take the jeans off? Did they also unlace her sneakers? and take them off, and also take her socks off before eating them? And if animals had taken off her clothes, why weren't there any signs that animals had attacked her after she died? Police claimed in October 2010 that if it wasn't animals, then it was rising groundwater that had unbuckled Mitrice's belt and removed her pants, underwear, socks, and shoes. Mitrice's body, despite having been in the elements for 11 months, was only partially decomposed. But like everything involving this case, the way the police handled Mitrice's remains and the explanations they gave were beyond inadequate. Police announced on August 13th, 2010, 
that Mitrice's body had been found, but that no foul play was suspected. They claimed that they had only recovered a skull and some bones, which was not true. They recovered a significant portion of Mitrice's body. The coroner would eventually rule the cause of Mitrice's death to be undetermined. Her mom, Latisse, and father, Michael, however, never give up trying to find answers about what happened to their daughter. In 2016, after years of pressure from Michael to the attorney general's office, who at the time was being led by now Vice President Kamala Harris, finally decided to look into Mitrice's case. But after a year of investigating, concluded that they could not find any wrongdoing on behalf of the L.A. Sheriff's Department. Mitrice's family did file a wrongful death suit against the L.A. Sheriff's Department and were awarded $900,000 in damages, which is little consolation for the loss of their daughter. In 2019, a new sheriff came in and told Mitrice's family that he would look into Mitrice's case from the beginning, but a few weeks later announced that after reviewing the case and the files that there was no reason to reopen the investigation. There were some departmental changes regarding filing missing reports and reports in the wake of what happened to Mitrice. They said they now will make sure that, you know, arrestees have their cell phones upon release. But it was too little too late for Mitrice and her family. Mitrice has been gone for 11 years, but time has held nothing for Latisse and Michael. The actions of the L.A. Sheriff's Department the night Mitrice went missing, the inconsistencies and the outright lies have haunted Mitrice's parents. The should-haves and the could-haves haunt them, too. Latisse struggled with her own guilt over the years. Guilt about not driving to the police station that night to check on her daughter. And since we don't know what happened to Mitrice or the circumstances of her death, it's understandable why a mother would feel that guilt. But it wasn't Latisse's fault, nor was it Michael's. Something happened to Mitrice, and I do not believe that her death was an accident. And we can go back and forth about what the police did or did not do, whether they followed protocol or not. But ask yourself this. If Mitrice had been a young white woman, would police have just let her walk out of the front door and wander off into the night, never to be seen again? Or would they have made sure that she got somewhere safe. Mitrice Richardson was a young woman who was struggling with her mental health. Now, whether she was bipolar or experiencing something else, the Los Angeles Sheriff's Department should have taken better care of Mitrice. The fact that they didn't makes me angry. And the fact that they lied and covered stuff up makes me even more angry. Sometimes things have a way of being brought out of the darkness and into the light. And so we can only hope that one day someone comes forward and tells the truth about what happened to Mitrice Richardson. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. 
We will be back next week with a brand new story. Don't forget to leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts. It helps our show grow so we can continue to tell these stories. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Instagram at Black Girl Gone Podcast. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.